Well, let us continue in worship. Let us open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. This morning, we're looking at verses 3 through 6. Exodus 20, verse 3 through 6. Our hearts are full of gratitude by now, and uh, it is always good to remind ourselves of the truths of Scripture, salvation, redemption through Christ. So we continue to respond in worship to our Lord as we open up his word. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let us pray. Father, teach us this morning. May your spirit be our guide. And I pray, Lord, that this will not be human wisdom, but it will be your wisdom coming forth from this pulpit. Father, as always, we pray that you will save sinners, that you will sanctify saints, and that you will exalt the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we are considering the issue of worship and idolatry. Worship and idolatry. So let me begin by sharing a brief story with you. The first church to ever call me as their pastor was in California. It was a small church in a small town. And this church had its own building. In a way, it was similar to our building in that they had uh, separate buildings and one adjacent to it, and that was their fellowship hall. And I remember that uh, during our first visit, as we were exploring the possibility of going to this church, they took us on a tour of the building. And everything seemed normal. That is, until we went into the fellowship hall. As soon as we went in, there was one thing that immediately caught my eye. I couldn't help but notice that in one of the most prominent walls, they had a very big, in-your-face painting of a man with long, blonde hair, blue eyes, and very, very light skin. They call the painting a portrait of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I did not like it (laughs) in the least. But to make long story short, in God's mysterious providence, I ended up accepting the call to become their pastor. My entire ministry in that church was very, very challenging. But things got very interesting later on when one day I, being quite young, And somewhat impulsive, decided to do the unthinkable. I took the painting down. Yeah, I know. But I was very strategic in doing so. You see, I took it down on a Monday. There was nobody else in the building. It was just me. And so my thought process was, maybe no one will notice. Well, I was very, very wrong. 
The very next day, the very next day, the secretary of the church, a man who didn't really like me that much anyway, he comes straight into my office. He doesn't knock. And he asks, where is Jesus? <laughs> to which I responded, brother, he is at the right hand of the father interceding for us. Now, suffice it to say, my response did not help improve our relationship, if you know what I mean. He did not appreciate my response. You see, our miscommunication, which was very intentional on my part, was rooted in the fact that he was asking me about the painting of a man with long hair, blue eyes, and light skin. I, on the other hand, was talking about the Jesus of the Bible. And brothers and sisters, they are not the same. In fact, let me give you the main thesis for the sermon. We don't use images of any kind because these undermine the true nature of our relationship to God in Christ, which is empowered only and exclusively by the Holy Spirit who is invisible. So as we dive in, please allow me to ask you two of the most fundamental questions when we consider the issue of idolatry. The first one is this. Are you an idolater? Are you an idolater? Well, how do we know? Well, here's the follow-up fundamental question. What are you becoming? What are you becoming? I ask that question because I believe G.K. Beale is correct. He wrote a book entitled, We Become What We Worship. And I believe he is correct. Ultimately, we all become what we worship. In other words, we are all worshiping beings and our worship molds our very lives. We are all in the process of being transformed and that transformation takes place as we worship. Our worship will manifest itself in and through the way we live our lives. And the very God or gods that you worship will ultimately determine what your life looks like. So I ask you again, what are you becoming? This is undoubtedly one of the most profound questions you could ask about yourself because eventually you will begin to look like the one before whom you bow your knees. And my friend, you are bowing your knees to something or to someone. There is no one in this room that is neutral. Every single person in this room is worshiping someone or something. The question is who or what has your undivided attention and who or what has your heart's affections. Now with that question in mind, let's ju jump right in. I only have four main points for your consideration. Plus two brief points for further application at the end. And as I said a few moments ago, the first two commandments are all about worship. These two commandments are the God given instructions on how to worship him properly and they set the stage for everything else. The first commandment, commandment number one, teaches us the most fundamental principle of worship, which is point number one in your notes if you're following along. Worship is founded upon one great confession. What is that confession? There's only one true God. 
Worship is founded upon one great confession. There is only one true God. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. In Old Testament Judaism, there was one confession that stood above all the others. It even has a name. It is called the Shema, the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. This confession is recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, which says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is what? The Lord is one. Undoubtedly, the singularity of God was the most important aspect of the Jewish faith as it was revealed in the Old Testament. But my brothers and sisters, that has not changed. The singularity of God, the fact that there's only one true God still is the central tenet of the Christian faith and the single most important truth for any and all proper and acceptable worship. This great confession goes to the very heart of who we are and what we do as believers. So let me see if I can highlight the singularity of God from a few different angles. First, God is singular in his existence. God is one in the sense that there are no other gods. There are no other gods. In fact, Paul tells us that idols are nothing. They are nothing. I am aware that Satan is called the God of this world. But that only means that he has been given influence over the world, not that he is actually indeed a God. There's only one God, and that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the fundamental problem of the Mormon religion and why it is a false and damning religion. One of its most bizarre teachings is that there have been multiple, multiple worlds ruled and inhabited by multiple gods. This is why the second president and so-called prophet of the Mormon cult, Brigham Young, even said this, and I quote, how many gods there are, I do not know, end quote. That's very unfortunate for him and all his followers, because if you don't know how many gods there are, then you certainly don't know the one true God. You don't know it. God is singular in existence. There's only one God. Second, God is singular in nature. Only God is the creator. And since only God is the creator, then guess what? Everything else is creature. Everything else is creature. Therefore, embedded in this great confession of the singularity of God is this massively important distinction between the creator and the creature. The fact that God's nature is divine means that in order to worship him properly, we must never, never, never confuse him with that which is created. Never. This is why in our singing a few moments ago, we confess together all creatures of our God and King. We make a distinction. The reason we can say that with full confidence is because our God does not belong to the realm of the created. Once again, Mormonism stands as a perfect sample of what a denial of this truth looks like. Consider one more time what Brigham Young said, and I quote, 
to assert that the Lord made this earth out of nothing is preposterous and impossible. God never made something out of nothing. End quote. Let me ask you, if God never made anything out of nothing, then all material things were already in existence alongside who? God. Which means that ultimately God doesn't transcend nature and matter, but has always existed alongside nature and matter. And if that's true, then the creator creature distinction is utterly destroyed. The Bible, however, teaches that God is and always will be the creator. We are the creatures because we have been created. There was a time when we were not. God, on the other hand, is the creator because he is uncreated. There has never been a time when God was not. And in this regard, God is therefore singular. Third, God is singular in power. God is singular in power. God's power is such that the creation of the entire universe did nothing to diminish it. Isn't that amazing? He created the entire universe. And that was, did nothing to diminish his power. God's power is such that sustaining the entire universe has done nothing to weaken his power. His power has always and always will be the same. In fact, so powerful is God that during his trial, Jesus told the high priest, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, capital P. So powerful is God that he's even called power. All gods of human invention struggle with power. Not so the true God, he's power. Fourth, God is singular in grace. Only the true God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ extends grace to those who deserve his wrath. And he does so with absolute freedom. There is no external coercion. There is no bribery. There is no price to pay. In fact, so singular is God in his grace that the price owed he himself pays. And he did that by sending his own dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ to die for sinners. And fifth, God is singular in praise worthiness, praise worthiness. Do you see how all these things flow together? Because God is singular in his existence his nature, his power, and his grace. He's also singular in the fact that only he deserves praise and adoration. There's no other being in the universe praiseworthy like God. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before him. Now, this leads us to our second main consideration for this morning. So worship is founded in that one great confession. There's only one God. But worship, number two, is guarded is guarded by one supreme truth. Worship is guarded by one supreme truth. What is that truth? God is a spirit. God is a spirit. Consider verses four and five. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above 
or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them to serve them. My brothers and sisters, behold, the root cause of every evil, namely idolatry. Idolatry. First, let me see if I can develop the concept of idolatry a bit further. What is idolatry according to the Bible? Well, if, if I only had one minute to explain it, and I knew I wasn't going to see you ever again, and for whatever reason you were desperate to know what idolatry was, I have two words for you. Romans 1. Romans 1. And in fact, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. Romans 1. And in God's providence, we read this during our singing time. But this is one, probably one of the most fundamental verses that teaches what idolatry actually is. And I want us to read beginning in verse 22 through 25. Romans 1, verses 22 and 25. We're considering the issue of idolatry. Listen to how Paul speaks about it. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Did you notice that there is one word Paul uses twice? It is the key word for understanding idolatry. Did you catch that word? Exchange. Exchange. Idolatry at its very core is the exchange of the true God for something else. And note with me, please, that this exchange is very specific in nature. Idolatry involves the exchange of essentially two things. The glory of God verse 23 and the truth about God verse 25. That is idolatry. You exchange the glory of God and the truth about God for something else. Therefore we can conclude that idolatry in any form is to deny God what is rightfully his. What are those things that are rightfully his? Well, according to Romans 1:23, glory, According to Romans 1:25, worship consistent with who he is. Now, let me just zoom in on verse 25. Paul says they exchanged the, the truth about God for a lie. Let me ask you this. What is that lie? What is that lie? Well, if you look at the context, the lie is this. God is not that different from creation. That is the lie. Thus, the lie involves blurring, diminishing, or even canceling the creator-creature distinction. Idolatry is people taking that lie and applying it to their worship. The lie that God is not that different from creation has devastating consequences because it quickly turns into the perfect excuse for worshiping God in improper and unacceptable ways. I will draw your attention to a historical example that perfectly illustrates this type of sinful thinking. In the first millennia of the existence of the church, there were several councils, 
several councils that were convened to address different issues. There were seven of these councils in total. The last of these councils took place in 787 AD, and it is known as the Second Council of Nicaea. The purpose? The purpose of that council, the last council, was to determine whether the use of images of Christ, Mary, and angels was a legitimate practice for the worship of the church. All this came about because of a movement that arose years prior known as iconoclasm, iconoclasm, which literally means image breakers, image breakers. This iconoclastic movement was a response to what was known as iconodualism, which literally means image servants from the word doulos in Greek is servant or slave image servants or slaves. Now, during this council in 787, the second council of Nicaea, a fateful, quite fatal distinction was made between worship and veneration. Worship and veneration. Veneration of images, which were representations of Christ, became acceptable and even encouraged, while worship was reserved for God alone. But what was the main argument coming from the image servant crowd. Well, believe it or not, the main argument for the veneration of images was nothing less than the incarnation of Christ. The reasoning went something like this. Well, Jesus became a man, didn't he? Therefore images that represent Christ in his humanity are not only acceptable, but needed for proper and deeper worship. In fact, there was a man by the name of John Damascus was one of the main proponents of this argument. Well, the incarnation of Jesus, he became a man. Well, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Well, the answer is quite simple. We can't accept images of Jesus because Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is the God man. Jesus is the God man. Therefore, Images, no image can do justice to who Christ truly is. An image may represent a man, but an image will never be able to represent the word that was in the beginning with God and who was God, the word who became flesh. Jesus is the Theoanthropos, not just the Anthropos, not just the man, but he's also the Theos. He's God. Therefore, an image of Christ is not Christ, but simply a human creation. Ultimately, images are an attack to his greatness and a diminishing of his glory. Now, let's go back to the argument put forth by Paul in Romans 1.25. He talks about idolatry as the exchanging of the truth about God for a lie. We looked at the lie. But what is the truth about God? Here's the truth about God. Out of the mouth of Jesus himself, who said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 24, God is spirit. That is the truth about God. God is a spirit. My dear brothers and sisters, the only acceptable worship is the worship that is consistent with who God is. And if God is spirit, then no representations, no images can ever be acceptable. 
And the only proper worship is then in spirit and in truth. Let me say further that the man who came into my office and spoke to me in anger about an image of Christ did so because at the end of the day, images reveal one of two things, either theological superficiality or lack of spiritual life. Let me put it this way. The only people who need images to enhance or improve or even carry out their worship are the people who lack the substance of true religion. What is the substance of true religion? Well, in the words of Paul, the substance of true religion is access to the father in Christ and by the spirit who is invisible. And I'm getting that strictly out of Ephesians 2:18. The truth is that no, in order to make up for the lack of depth and the lack of true knowledge of God in Christ, many people turn to images. But let me throw another line of argumentation against this, against images. Consider this. Isn't the use of images also contrary to one of the core convictions of Christianity, namely faith. Let me ask you this. How does the Bible define faith in Hebrews 11:1? 1? Well, in case you don't remember, I can refresh your mind. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Moreover, if we walk by faith, we cannot walk by sight. If faith is defined by the Bible as consisting of the inability to see, then why would you seek to enhance, improve, or feed your faith through things that are seen? Could it be then that the worship through images is ultimately a demonstration of lack of true faith in the written promises of God and the invisible work of the Holy Spirit? Yes, I think so. It is a very logical conclusion. Therefore, as Christians, we must guard our worship of God by reminding ourselves of the truth about God, namely that he is spirit. As such, he can only be worshiped in spirit and in truth. The bottom line of the second commandment is that to worship God in any other way, to run, to turn to things that are visible, such as images or whatever form of representation of him is to deny God, his very spiritual nature. And it is also contrary to our to our call to walk by faith and not by sight. We strengthen our faith, not by looking to images or man-made representations, but by looking to God's promises in Christ Jesus as revealed in his written word. In these things, we rest nothing else. But the principles of true worship don't stop here. There's more. Here's the third principle of true and acceptable worship. Number three, worship is rooted. Worship is rooted in one divine act. What is that? Electing love. Electing love. The Lord says, for I am a jealous God. A jealous God. In the first place, we need to remember that these words were spoken in connection to what the Israelites experienced in Egypt. 
the Egyptians were a very polytheistic people. They worshipped many false gods. It is in fact true that each of the plagues were a direct attack on these false gods of the Egyptians. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, after warning about the final plague, the Lord said to Moses, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The plagues were not simply a demonstration of power on the part of God. They were also a direct judgment on the false gods of the Egyptians. God was sending a clear message. Your gods are false idols, idols and idols are nothing. There's only one true God, but let's talk about God's jealousy for a moment. Don't miss the very important fact that God did not say these words to the Egyptians, nor did he say those words to the Amorites or the Jebusites or the Hittites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians at any point in history in the old Testament, God's jealousy was directed to one nation and one nation only Israel. Why? Because they were his chosen people. Therefore God loved them with an exclusive love. This is electing love. Therefore, when we think of God's jealousy, we are not to think of it as anything sinful or improper. What is God's jealousy? God's jealousy is his love claiming what is rightfully his. That is the praises and adoration of his chosen people. You and I must be clear on this. God's jealousy is not capricious. God's jealousy is love in action. I like to think of God's jealousy as the holy fury of his love for his elect people. Listen, my brothers and sisters, when God says that he loves his people, he means it. Moreover, he is still jealous for the worship of his church. Why? Because just like Israel, the church is God's chosen people from every tribe nation and tongue. And who is the church? Well, listen to how Paul defined the church in Philippians chapter three, verse three, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There you have it. The central description of the church, according to Paul is that we worship by the spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus, which leads us to our fourth main highlight for today. Worship is originated. Worship is originated in one single source. What is that source? The heart, the heart consider verse five, the second half of verse five of Exodus 20 visiting the iniquity of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is one of the most striking and astonishing words in all of scripture. Let me tell you why the heart of proper or improper, acceptable or unacceptable worship is the heart itself. 
And the fact that God included this in the Ten Commandments is astonishing. Please know that this is not just a side comment. These words are integral to the entire Second Commandment. These words were also written on stone. Well then, where am I seeing the heart in these words, right? Where it talks about hatred and love. You see, according to these verses, improper and unacceptable worship is iniquity and it comes from hatred. Proper and acceptable worship is good and it comes from love. Both of these have one and the same source, the human heart. This is a reference to the inner man, that aspect of our humanity that is invisible to the eye, yet wholly visible to God. Thus, we must conclude that the believer's desire for proper and acceptable worship to God should never be a matter of legalism, but only a matter of love. But it is precisely at this point where we must pause and celebrate the beauty, the power, the glory of the blessings of the new covenant in Christ Jesus and by the spirit of God. Here's why the new covenant under Christ is actually new and why it is actually better than the old covenant under Moses. I want you to turn with me to two verses. We're going to read them in parallel. The first one is found in Jeremiah 31, 33. And we read this one last week, but I want to read it in conjunction with another verse. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is the promise of the new covenant. And this is why the new covenant is actually new and it is actually better than the old. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20. Now we're going to read the purpose of the new covenant. What is the purpose of the new covenant? Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20. Verse 19 says this, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Verse 20. Here's the purpose of the new covenant that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Did you hear that? The new covenant in Christ comes with two marvelous promises. First, the law is written in the heart. Second, the believer is made to walk in the law. Brothers and sisters, this is why the Christian does not see God's law as a burden, but as a delight. Why? Because delight in the law of God is a blessing of the new covenant enjoyed by all those who belong to it. The new covenant is new and is better than the old covenant in that through Christ and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, all believers, all believers are members of the new covenant and they are made to love God. And this love is seen in their obedience to the law. 
Therefore, because we are members of the new covenant, saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus and indwelt by the spirit, our worship is now acceptable in God's sight. And he is pleased with our hearts. We are the ones who love God. Not so those who are outside of the new covenant, meaning unbelievers. Consider what the same prophet Ezekiel said in the following verse, chapter 11, verse 21. After speaking about the blessings of the new covenant in verse 20, the Lord says this, but as for those whose heart, listen to that. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Undeniably, my friends, both idolatry and true worship spring forth from the same source, the heart. What is the difference? Well, the only difference is that the believer's heart has been made new in Christ. Therefore, we love God. Do you realize that even acceptable worship to God is itself the work of God's hands. If God accepts our worship is only because he himself has provided a way for us through Christ and by the spirit. So we praise God for the new covenant in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let me give you with, let me leave you with two thoughts for further consideration. And we'll keep this short. When we worship, we must ask one critical question. When we worship, we must ask one critical question. What is that question? What comes to mind when I think of God? What comes to my mind when I think of God? Uh, an author, his name is A.W. Tozer, famously said, what you think of when you think of God is the most important thing about you. What you think of when you think about God is the most important thing about you. This is a tremendously important statement, and I agree with him. Nothing says more about you than your conception of who God is. So, what do we do in this regard? How do we properly think of God while at the same time avoiding idolatrous ideas of him? Isn't that an important question? Let me propose the following to you. And this is going to require some work on your part later on. In seeking to honor God through our thoughts of him, we must think of him in terms of his perfections, his attributes, rather than pictures or images. God has revealed himself to us through attributes such as holiness, love, patience, mercy, grace, power, etc. Therefore, this is how we ought to think of God. In that regard, and on a practical note, I would encourage you to study one particular doctrine. Can you guess what that doctrine is? I will give you a book. I always say that. 
I will give you a book if you can guess what doctor I'm talking about. To help you think of God, I'm referring to the doctrine of divine simplicity. Divine simplicity. The doctrine of divine simplicity is helpful because it teaches us that God is not distinct from his attributes, but that he is his attributes. For instance, the doctrine of divine simplicity teaches us that God doesn't just feel love, but what does the Bible say? God is love. God doesn't just have power. He is power. So this is a very helpful doctrine for us to think of God in proper ways. We think of his attributes with which and through which he has revealed himself to us. And then finally, when we worship, we must remember one gospel fact. When we worship, we must remember one gospel fact. God's faithfulness in Christ. God's faithfulness in Christ. Let me finish by giving you this thought. On the one hand, the first and second commandments are a reminder of the terrors of the law of God. Because the law cannot save us. The law can only tell you what you need, what you must do, and the law can expose your sin, but the law cannot give you the power to defeat your sin. The law is like a mirror. It can only show you the truth, but it cannot change you. The gospel, on the other hand, is the faithfulness of God in Christ. Why do we need to remind ourselves of this? Because we are people of many idols. And many of these idols are kept in the heart. But Christ has paid the price for our idolatry. And he is now transforming us. So let me leave you with God's new covenant promise to us. In Hebrews 8:12, we read, from the mouth of the Lord, I will be merciful toward their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. Even our idolatry has been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And we now have forgiveness of sins and God remembers our sins no more. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for reminding us of the exclusive call you have placed upon us to worship you in a way that honors your very nature. Father, I pray that you will keep us from idols as John told the people he wrote to. Keep us, Lord, from forming idols in our hearts that will distract us from you. And help us, Lord, to not think of you as comparable to anything that has been created, but to think of you only in a way that is proper and worthy of who you are. And so, Father, we, Father, we pray for the work of the Spirit, that you will continue to teach us through him the truths that we have considered this morning. 
And help us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And these things we pray in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.